Insomnia and excessive sleepiness are commonly encountered clinical problems, yet most patients with insomnia are not excessively sleepy. How can you quickly evaluate these problems? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, Director of Foothill Psychiatry in Boise, your host, and with me today is Dr. Rick Bogan. Dr. Bogan is the President and Medical Director of Sleep Med of South Carolina, Chairman and Chief Medical Officer of Sleep Med Incorporated, Medical Director of Premier Health Systems Incorporated, and an Assistant Clinical Professor in the University of South Carolina's Medical School. He is certified by the American Boards of Sleep Medicine, Critical Care, Internal Medicine, and Pulmonary Diseases. Welcome to ReachMD. Leslie, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Well, Rick, you know, the sleep matrix is one of my favorite things in the world of sleep. Tell us about the problems. Let's back up and tell us about the problems of insomnia and excessive sleepiness. Do they often coexist? Well, you know, it's interesting and debatable, quite frankly, because the literature is coming in sometimes to the contrary. But in general, our thought process of insomnia is that these individuals, particularly primary insomnia, not necessarily secondary insomnia, but patients with primary insomnia are thought to be intrinsically hypervigilant. It's almost as if the brain won't shut off. As you know, the brain wants to be awake or asleep. It doesn't want to be in between. But some of these individuals, it appears that the awake circuits don't fully turn off. So these individuals are thought to be in a hyper-aroused or hyper-vigilant state. I call them, I see patients every day with this problem, I call them the sleeping sentinels. So having said that, these individuals in general, even when they have short total sleep times, they will tell you, Doc, I can't take a nap during the day. I'm tired, I'm sleepy, but I cannot take a nap. Now the disclaimer to that is, that these individuals are just like anyone else. If you deprive them of sleep long enough, then the homeostatic drive or the thirst for sleep is going to eventually take over and they will sleep. So it's very common for our patients to tell us, you know, Doc, I, I went days without sleep and then I crashed and it was wonderful. <laughs> and sometimes when they take sleepy questionnaires like the Epworth Sleepiness Scale, which is a hypersomnolent scale or a sleepy scale, sometimes they will score those as high. But in general... If you did nap studies during the day to measure how quickly they fall asleep, these individuals have trouble taking naps. They are intrinsically hyperaroused. Because certainly one of the problems we have in clinical practice is to try to figure out which end we start at. Do we give somebody something to help them sleep or something to help them stay awake? Exactly. And when we developed this insomnia index that we have, uh, when it was originally designed, surprisingly, as we studied it, it had a component to it that allowed us to separate normal from abnormal. So if individuals had almost any abnormality in these 10 simple questions, then they would reach a threshold that signified that they were abnormal. And so we could look at some continuity of sleep measures and you know factors. You could look at different factors of the sleep complaint. But then when you coupled that with the Epworth Sleepiness Scale, and then we had a two-dimensional matrix. So patients fit into different sectors and we actually were quite surprised to see some people who had a very high insomnia index uh, who also were very, very sleepy. But we also had our typical insomnia patients who in general scored very high on the insomnia index but scored fairly low on the Epworth. Mm-hmm. So you've called this the sleep matrix, combining both your insomnia scale and then the Epworth sleepiness scale. Correct. And so we affectionately, in my clinic, we call this the sleep vital sign. So oh. typically the patient will fill these questionnaires out and the nurse will apply the dot, shall we say, of the two-dimensional graph in terms of what sector the patient presents. 
we've actually had an interest in letting our referral base use this as well because, as you know, primary care physicians and many other physicians that refer to us, they're saying, Doc, how do I decide you know, when to refer a patient? I have 20 to 40% of people who snore and a third of my people are, are sleepy and maybe half are tired. And how do I, I can't send you all those people. <laughs> so <laughs> how do I decide? And we developed this questionnaire to give them some guidance quite frankly. How do you use the sleep matrix to help us decide whether or not to send patients to the sleep lab? Well, generally speaking, uh, there, there are two real ways. One is that when individuals clearly have an elevated Epworth score, so the Epworth sleepiness scale, as you know, is a measure of hypersomnolence. So when individuals fit high up on the Epworth score, then usually in the, in the laboratory, we can find a reason to treat those individuals if they have a fairly low score, and certainly if they fit down into the normal sector, then we've got to look for something else in terms of why are these individuals tired? Are they anemic or do they have a thyroid abnormality or, or what's going on? So when individuals fit up into the very high insomnia index but not particularly sleepy, then those individuals probably we're going to address whether this is primary or, or secondary insomnia and approach it from that perspective. So it really helps from that, that perspective. And then as well, we have a chance to monitor the individuals over a period of time and see how they are responding. If we don't see them moving toward the normal area after, say, several months of therapy, then that also is a reason to refer on to your friendly sleep doc. Mm-hmm. So it literally is just two-dimensional. You plot the insomnia score on one axis and the sleepiness scale on the other? That's exactly right. So clinically, we might use it in primary care to help us decide whether or not to send them to you. Any other way that docs could use this in the clinic? Sure. It really tells them how severe the patient is. In other words, if I have a patient with an insomnia index of 38 out of 40 who has an Epworth, say, of 3, is not very sleepy, then that immediately tells me this patient is really hurting. It's, it's a pretty severe problem. So I may have a patient who comes in and says, Doc, I'm not sleeping well. And when I look at the questionnaire, I can quickly look at the factors and I can score the patient quantitatively and, and quickly, within just less than a minute, get an idea of what's going on in this particular patient from a severity perspective. And that will then, in turn, guide me to, to query, well, you know, if it's a low score and I think I have an explanation, then I may move on. But if I have a high score, then I need to spend some more time with this. And you and I know... Most patients, quite frankly, don't address these issues with their doc. I mean, they come in with their hypertension or their diabetes or their mood changes or fatigue or nonspecific complaints, and we know over 70% of patients with insomnia don't really discuss that with their docs. So this is a really neat questionnaire from the perspective of being able to quickly quantify the symptom and also to look at the various factors. Now, does it help guide your treatment choice at all? It really does, and we've actually done some studies on this as an example You may have a patient with obstructive sleep apnea who comes in and says, Doc, I'm tired and sleepy, and, oh, by the way, I snore. But what we've interestingly found is that we have patients with obstructive sleep apnea who have insomnia. And so they may score very high on the insomnia score, and they are also sleepy. So the fact that they are sleepy tells me that something else is probably going on other than just insomnia. But, oh, by the way, they do have a significant insomnia complaint. If I can't completely explain that on the basis of their sleep apnea, then I would be treating two disorders. I'm going to be treating sleep apnea as well as their insomnia in hopes to get them to accommodate to whatever therapy we so choose. 
Now, that's a tough one. Insomnia and obstructive sleep apnea, don't most of our um, hypnotics worsen sleep apnea? Well, that's a good question. We, we normally think that the non-benzos don't particularly increase upper airway resistance very much. Now, sleep itself is a liability in obstructive sleep apnea, as you know, and these are sleep aids and they help people sleep. But we don't think of those particular compounds as dramatically increasing upper airway resistance beyond the effect of of producing sleep. So uh, in these individuals who clearly have a major insomnia component as we explore this, then we may in fact use a mild sleep aid or the non-benzo hypnotics to help them initiate sleep and and accommodate to the the CPAP. And of course we'll use will really emphasize cognitive behavioral therapy as well in those individuals. Now, is there a place to sequentially redo the sleep matrix to see how it changes with treatment? Absolutely. In fact, we do a sleep vital sign every time we have a patient come in. And what's really interesting, I just, one of my patients actually went to a national sales meeting, and she's precious because um, she has narcolepsy, interestingly enough. So in the questions from the various uh, salespeople and management individuals when they were talking to her, she knew her scores, so she knew her Epworth and her Insomnia Index score, and uh, they were flabbergasted that <laughs> a patient would know their score. But it just shows that we use these, and it really does help us track the initial complaint and how the patients are moving and responding. And in fact, in the article that was published recently, uh, we we reflected on that. We had a group of patients with primary insomnia who were treated with a hypnotic, and we were able to show how the patients responded, how they moved from one sector to the other in terms of quantifying those patients' response. And what we saw was about a 70% response rate in these individuals, which is comparable to what you see in the phase three studies for various hypnotics. Now, for those of our listeners who'd like to take a look at that paper that Dr. Bogan is referring to, it's in uh, this year's Neuropsychiatric Disease and Treatment. Um, And I'm sure if you do a PubMed search, uh, you can find it easily. Now, um, speaking of that, uh, where can our listeners obtain a copy of the Sleep Vital Sign? Well, you can uh, log on to our website, sleepmed.md, or you can email me, and I'll be glad to send one to you. And as it's copyrighted, but it's free, so you're, you're welcome to use it. But I can be reached at rbogan at sleepmed.md, and I'll repeat that, rbogan at sleepmed.md, and I'll be happy to forward it to them, and it can be reproduced and, and used. So, And Bogan is B-O-G-A-N for That's our correct. listeners. Now, uh, when do you think this would be appropriate for a primary care provider to give to patients? I think if they have an individual comes in and says, Doc, I'm tired or I'm sleepy, uh, then those would be the times, or, or certainly even mood disturbance. The patient says, I'm depressed, because as you well know, most patients with mood disturbance have a sleep complaint as well. Until we improve the sleep, it's very difficult to get over the mood disturbance and vice versa. So, um, so they can use this in their initial quantification of, of the complaint, and I think it will give them some guidance. And I would say, too, for those people in specialties such as mine, psychiatry, I think this should be given to all patients, certainly the first visit, and then if it's abnormal, again, to do it sequentially every visit. It really does help you understand how difficult it is to get individuals normal. And as you well know, treating sleepy patients, it's hard to get a sleepy patient not sleepy, not you know to bring them back to normal. And this tool really is sensitive enough to, to help us with that. So it really does 
expedite our care. Mm-hmm. I can see that. And certainly our experience is that as much as insomnia patients don't tell us about their trouble sleeping, the sleepy people are even worse, that they, they don't volunteer the information unless you specifically ask about it. I completely agree. As you well know, sleepiness is, has many manifestations beyond just being sleepy. It includes fatigue and cognitive changes and mood changes and apathy. So patients can present with any of those complaints. And until we actually quantify the complaint and recognize it as being hypersomnolent, then uh, we may miss that. I'd like to thank our guest today, Dr. Rick Bogan. We have been discussing how to evaluate insomnia and excessive sleepiness. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments. Please visit us at ReachMD.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Thank you for listening. You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals.